Good morning, church. What an amazing December morning we're having. I would like to just be able to go out there and bask in the sunshine. That is a rather unusual thing to say on a December morning at how many days away from Christmas, kids? Six days. I knew someone was counting. Well, kids count down to Christmas. I have a secret for you kids. Adults count down too, but they don't count necessarily down to Christmas. They count down to December 21st. You know why? It is because on December 21st, the sun hits bottom and it starts to rise again. Now, I don't know about you, but I count down the time until, December, until the winter solstice because to me, life, light is life. If I didn't know it before, I discovered it when uh, we moved to Maryland from the equator in Africa where we, had, we were drenched in sunshine. And when the winter started here in our first year in Maryland, I discovered that I had SAD. You know what that means? Seasonal Affective Disorder. Where I just felt as the night was getting longer and the days were getting shorter, that energy was literally draining out of me. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, if there is one uh, area of uh, the Home Depot that I love, it's the lighting section. And so perhaps uh, it is uh, appropriate for us to think about Christmas in terms of the light. We have, of course, uh, those beautiful Christmas decorations here that remind us that Christmas is at the door and that we do celebrate Christmas within just a few short days of this winter solstice. But this morning I would like to draw your attention to the story of the light. And I will use the text that we read a moment ago <clears throat> as our platform in Isaiah chapter 60, starting with verse 1 and 2, where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. There is this bright message that light is about to rise upon Jerusalem. But no sooner has the prophet pierced the darkness with his message of hope, that he, see, he says, see, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over all the people. But the Lord rises upon you. What a contrast these first two verses of Isaiah describe. A stark contrast between the light that rises, in fact the glory of the Lord, and darkness. Darkness was deep. At the time when Jesus came into the world. It covered all the earth. And of course physically 
the story of the shepherds and even the story of the Magi, those hallowed stories of Christmas, convey to us that sense of darkness. For after all, the story of the shepherds pierces our minds and remains in our memories so well because it tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds as they were tending their flocks out there and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Interesting that the text of the book of, of the Gospel of Luke uses the word the glory of the Lord just as the messianic text of Isaiah. And then... Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill. And of course, this chorus of angels has rung throughout the 2,000 years of Christendom and Christianity that we have behind us. Yes, on that day, on the hills of Judea, the darkness was deep until it was pierced by the glory of the Lord in the form of an angel sent from above with a message praising and hailing the birth of the Messiah. And then, of course, the story of the Magi is another story of light. This one characterized by a star that went ahead of them. The star went ahead, does the text tell us in Matthew chapter 2? And... It went ahead of them until it did what? It stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw it, the text says, they were overjoyed. It wasn't just that they rejoiced. You know, the rejoicing is a state of mind that perhaps can be more or less deep or more or less superficial. But when you say that you are overjoyed, then truly joy washes over you in such a way that it leaves you dumbfounded and amazed. Yes, light had pierced the darkness in Palestine when Jesus was born. Morally, the darkness in Palestine was deep also. For we're told by Matthew that when the Magi came to Jerusalem and asked for directions to find the newborn Messiah, the shock in Jerusalem was great. Herod's called his scribes and his Pharisees and asked them to explain to him where could the newborn Messiah be. And Jerusalem did not want to know it. I mean, what an amazing paradox to think that for centuries and even millennia, the people of God had looked forward to receiving the Messiah. And when finally someone comes and tells them that a star has guided them all the way to Jerusalem so that they could find the newborn king, nobody in Jerusalem would stir up and say, we want to go with these magi. And if it's in Bethlehem, what is the big deal about this? This is only an hour worth of walking. 
It's not like they were going to travel all the way to Egypt or travel all the way to Ur in Chaldea like Abram had done on his way to Palestine. No, it was just before their very door. But their moral thickness was so deep that they would not rise. And to make matters worse, when the Magi did not return to Jerusalem to bring the message to Herod, he decided that just in order to make sure that his wretched life and throne would be spared, he ordered the so-called massacre of the innocents. The darkness was deep, and yet the light had pierced the sky over the hills of Bethlehem and all the way into the chambers of the king. And surely the story must have spread throughout Judea, the story of the shepherds. They must have just gone from place to place and told everybody who was within reach that they had seen not only an angel announce the king and the Messiah, but they had seen him swaddled in clothes in a manger. And of course, we who live 2,000 years later, that imagery of the, of the shepherds and of the magi, of the wise men coming to the manger is deeply embedded in our memories because dozens and dozens of artists throughout history have rendered that scene according to their imagination. The greatest artists, the greatest painters, Rembrandt, Botticelli, Da Vinci, and, and Velasquez, and many more, have all painted that scene for us with a glow of light illuminating the manger around baby Jesus. And yet, the people of Judea missed it. But for all who had missed the coming of the Messiah, for all who had missed because they were not born yet or they were too morally dense that they would not perceive the, the importance of it, for all who had missed the coming of the Messiah and the rising of the light over Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, they were given another chance. Three and a half years of ministry made it clear that the light was shining throughout the country. Now, I don't know about you, but we have just gone through uh, the series of sermons on the, book of, on the Gospel of Mark. And as I was reading my way through the Gospel of Mark, and I read about one miracle after another, about healing here, about lepers healed there, about blind men healed in another place, it became clear to me that as Jesus was going from village to town to village, it was like the light was shining brighter and brighter. I just almost get the physical sensation as I read the Gospel of Mark that the day was dawning, a bright morning in the spring of Judea and Galilee, full of hope, full of promises. I believe with all my heart that in the presence of Christ, darkness would flee, Disease and illness and discouragement would just leave. 
It was impossible for them to stand in the presence of the Creator and the presence of the Savior. And the, the excitement through Judea and Galilee and the whole of Palestine must have been palpable about this Messiah who brought so much joy and hope and strength and life. But then something strange happened. And we find that moment in a text that we tend to overlook. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is known for what? It is known for the signs of the times. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon here on the signs of the times, although I will refer to them because it is impossible to ignore them. But there is a verse there that we tend to overlook because it is not the thrust of the chapter. It is not the emphasis that Matthew gave in his account of what Jesus spoke on the Mount of Olives. But yet there is something there that is very strange in the story of the light. And it goes like this, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away. I've read this verse dozens, if not hundreds of times in my life. Until I realized as I read this verse in the context that, and in the context of the story of the light that this walking away of the temple was not just walking away like you walk away from the office at the end of a busy day. It is not like walking and leaving after you have completed your shopping at Costco or target, or wherever you need to go, it is walking away. Have you ever walked away from someone whom you love? Perhaps you can recall that story of your youth of that unrequited love. You've been in love with this beautiful girl for quite some time. Or you ladies, you've been in love with this dashing young man. And you've been hoping to catch his attention. You've been hoping to win her heart. And nothing happened. The relationship got stuck in neutral. She snubbed you. He turned his attention to some other woman. And eventually, you had to decide, it's time to walk away. Follow me. We are here in the last week before the crucifixion. In fact, we are on Tuesday of the week of the crucifixion. On Monday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. 
On Monday, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and overturned the tables after having been acclaimed by the crowd, Hosanna, Hosanna. You can read this in Matthew chapter 21. On Tuesday, after spending the night in Bethany, he returns to Jerusalem and to the temple and speaks at least three parables. The last one of them on the wedding banquet. And then he had a bruising confrontation with the Pharisees. And there is really no other way to to describe that confrontation. For he curses them not once, not twice, but seven times. And treats them and calls them hypocrites and a brood of vipers. I mean, what a language coming from the mouth of our Savior. And then he closes this confrontation by saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, Your house is left to you desolate until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he walks away, leaves the temple. The heart of Judaism. The heart of the cult of Yahweh. The symbol of pride of the nation of Israel. And as he walks away, his disciples came up to him to call his attention to this building. Now, do you get the disconnect there is there? After spending three and a half years in ministry, bringing light and hope to the people of Judea and Galilee, After trying to call on the Pharisees and the priests and the Sadducees to repent and accept him as that light that prophet Isaiah had foreseen and prophesied, he must turn away and finally say, that's it, Jerusalem. And we can imagine in what frame of mind he must have been. In fact, the day before, when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the parallel text in uh, Luke chapter 19 tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And surely, he must have also wept, if not outwardly, but inside, as he left Jerusalem. And his disciples find nothing else to say. Look at this beautiful temple. Now what a paradox and what a disconnect. Well, it is interesting that John understood that disconnect much later in his life. When he wrote the gospel and, said, and, 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 and wrote, In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Including the disciples. 
they had not understood it. And certainly the crowds of Pharisees and scribes and and priests who had crowded around Jesus in the temple court on that day had not understood it. No, because they would have wanted to have the glory of the Lord reinstated in the Holy of Holies. You see, it's interesting that the expression, the glory of the Lord that Isaiah uses in his prophetic texts is actually an expression that was very well understood to describe the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. To describe that dazzling brilliance that reflected off the very presence of God in the wilderness sanctuary. It describes that presence of God that descended upon the temple and took its abode in the Holy of Holies when Solomon inaugurated the temple about 950 years before. That was the pride of Jerusalem. And so when Jesus left and walked away from the temple on that Tuesday afternoon, while his disciples were trying to catch his attention and say, look at how beautiful this temple is, surely Jesus must have had a sense of déjà vu. Because he had, as the glory of the Lord, left the temple around 580, 580 or 600 years before. As the armies of Babylon were crowding upon Jerusalem and planning to attack it, Ezekiel describes how the glory of the Lord left the temple. And here we are again. After all these centuries, after all these messengers and prophets, after the very Son of God came to Jerusalem, the script cannot be changed. His people still expected the glory of the Lord to come back into the temple. But you know, why should it? For during all these centuries, while the glory of God was in the temple, the people of God had gone astray, had turned the cold shoulder to God. And so God decided to try another tack, to take another path, to implement another plan. The glory of the Lord would leave the temple and go and mingle with his people. Uh, Have you ever been asked to uh, think outside of the box? Well, now this is an example of God thinking outside of the box. This is, in fact, an example of God living outside of the box. You see, for centuries, he had been in this space which looked like a huge box. And in spite of his presence there, he could not change the hearts of the people of Israel. 
So he left the box and came in the form of men. But as he walked across Galilee, as he healed and raised the dead and spoke words of encouragement, it was obvious to all who had eyes to see that the light was rising and the new day was dawning. And that dawning could have had a different ending than the one that Jesus then had to reveal to his disciples. As they asked him, do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown over. And so the eyes of Jesus, instead of being fixed on that beautiful ending of the um, uh, prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 60, had to sweep across the chasm of time to AD 70, when the temple of Jerusalem would be destroyed and would foretell for us also the time of trouble and the time of the end before which we need to be prepared. Oh, the time could not yet be fulfilled. The time where they would lift up their eyes and look about and assemble and come to her, Jerusalem. Her sons come from afar and her daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come. This part of Isaiah's prophecy still had to wait. And we, brothers and sisters, we are still waiting. But yet, as Jesus described the signs of the times, he also gave them hope. He gave them hope that one day the light would return, this time in dazzling glory. The glory of the Lord would be manifest. But we are here. And at times I wonder how much light is left in the world. I don't know about you, but just as I was keenly stirred by the account of the gospel showing us a light shining brighter and brighter over Judea, as I watch what's happening around the world, I have a sense that there is some sort of an invisible hand on the world's dimmer, and that with every newscast, every news program daily, the light in the world grows dimmer. When you think of the year that we have behind us, it's just a rather amazing year. Uh, so, so many things of a dark nature have happened. I mean, you know, it started with Ebola. Do you remember that? There are so many things that have happened since Ebola that we may even have forgotten that Ebola 
sends so much of a fear in the hearts of everyone. And of course, lost tens of thousands of lives. And then, of course, there was the Charlie Hebdo massacre in Paris. And then uh, ISIS has been on the news like just almost every day bringing more and more darkness into the land. All the way to San Bernardino, California. Uh, Truly, isn't it time to remember that we are called to be children of the light. And that we are called to be men and women of faith. In a time when everything speaks of discouragement and moral darkness. Isaiah's prophecy stands in parallel with the message of Christmas. Message of Christmas that in the thickest of the night, the light pierced the darkness. The deeper the night... Declare the light that shines in the night. The deeper the night, the greater the contrast between the night and the light. The deeper the night, the clearer the choice between the night and the light. The deeper the night, the greater the victory over the night. When Jesus was born, the light punctured the night. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, the light vanquished the night. But brothers and sisters, one day Jesus will come again, and on that day, the light will banish the night. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Says the Apostle Paul. And and Revelation 21 verse 11 described... Jerusalem as coming down from heaven, shining with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Of course, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of the Savior. It is the celebration of uh, the light divine made flesh. Christmas is the time when families gather together to remember the gift that God gave us. Christmas is our affirmation that unlike the darkness of old who did not understand the light, we not only understand the light, but we prize it. Men and women of faith. We also need to remember that Christmas is for us the opportunity to express our faith that even though it seems that someone has the hand on a cosmic dimmer that turns down the light in this world day after day and newscast after newscast, We know because Jesus stopped on the Mount of Olives to offer a glimpse of the future and what signs of the times must be fulfilled before he comes. We know that the light will triumph. 
that the light will go to the far corners of the earth. And that perhaps even those whom today we seem to fear the most, those who do come from Midian and Ephah and blow themselves up or take out their Kalashnikov guns to mow down people, innocent people, these people too will be called to the light for... Chapter 60, verse 6 of Isaiah says, Herds of camel will cover your land, young camels of Median and Ephah. Those are the countries of Arab, or Arabia. Even those people who seem to now be under the pall of suspicion and terrorism and all the negative news that we can read in the, in the, in the, in the mails, even those people will come to recognize the light. Brothers and sisters, that's the message of Christmas. No sense in just celebrating the birth of a baby if we forget that that baby is the one who will come as the glory of the Lord. And on that day, Jerusalem will truly be able to shine in all its glory. Merry Christmas to you. Frohe Weihnachten. Feliz Navidad. Y Noel Bon Natale. God bless you with the light.